0: So with that said, let me dive in. Part three of our series, Foundations, uh, we've been in the series because talking about the foundational elements of our faith, and here's what we know, uh, even physically, in order for a structure to be built high, it must, have a, it must have a deep foundation. In the same way in your life, spiritually, in order for us to build the life that God's called us to, we must have a firm foundation, a deep foundation. In fact, the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, uh, he says, whoever hears these words of mine, and puts him into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Building our house on the rock, building our house on a firm foundation, so we're discussing foundational elements of our faith in this series, and today uh, we're going to be discussing a topic which I've never spoke directly on, uh, at least as this direct as I will today, and uh, one I think is important to discuss, and that is the topic of eternal life in heaven and hell. Uh, Some of you are already thinking, I wish today wasn't the day I invited my friend. Come on, we're talking about hell. All right, it's exciting, I know. Uh, No, but here's my hope, sincerely, Um, is that regardless of your background, maybe for some of you, many of you, Catalyst is sort of your first home church that you really, you've really leaned into, got planted into, Uh, and maybe this is a topic where you have some knowledge of, but you have a lot of questions about. My hope today is from the word of God to give clarity. Uh, maybe you grew up in an environment, a church environment, that was what's kind of categorized as hellfire and brimstone. Come on, you were scared into a relationship with Jesus. Come on. You were told of the perils of hell, so every Sunday you're like, Jesus, I'm yours, right? You know? <laughs> um, or maybe there was an emphasis on heaven, and there wasn't much discussion of hell. And maybe you've even had this thought, because some people believe this, that hell is is more symbolic, that it's not really a real place. And My hope today, again, is to give clarity from God's word. Uh, Let me say this off the forefront. If you dive into this study yourself, and there are some books I can recommend. Uh, It's it's a side of theology called eschatology that studies sort of the end times, eternal life. There is a lot we do not know. So here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to speculate where God is not clear. I'm going to give you what God's word says, and if you're like, hey, Jeremy, what about this? I'll just say, I don't know. <laughs> he is God and I am not. And, uh, but there's enough clarity to give us some, some application. My hope today is we're going to be deeply biblical, as always. Uh, you'll get an, a theological foundation on this topic, but also very practical. Like practically, how, how do we live now in light of eternity? How, how do we live now knowing this information? Uh, so with that said, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We pray as we open it up today, uh, you would speak to us. Uh, we are expectant. We came to hear a word from you. Uh, Father, we know that you're going to speak to us as we open up your word. And it is in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to share it with you. Instead of having a foundational passage... I'm, sharing, I'm going to share a lot of scripture with you, but I have three truths from God's word uh, with a lot of scripture uh, around it. So here, here's the first point. We're going to dive right in. If you're taking notes about this whole idea of living for eternity, and here, here's the truth I want you to grab hold of first, is that we can experience eternal life both now and forever. Both now and forever. John five twenty four. the words of Jesus, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but cross for over from death to life. That word eternal life, it means life continuously. It means life without a beginning and life without an end. It's the life and life more abundantly that Jesus promises in John ten ten. 10. That word believe means to be persuaded. It means you are fully persuaded. He says, those who are fully persuaded that I am the Lord, those who are fully persuaded that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords will experience life without end, he says. That's good news. Now, I'm going to speak to eternal life forever first, then we'll speak to the now. In Revelation 21, I'm going to read the Revelation of John This is towards the end of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, it's very back uh, in Revelation 21. And John has this revelation of what he refers to as the new heavens and the new earth. Now, let me give you clarity, and again, I could spend the next two hours uh, just into this topic alone, but I won't, so I'm going to try to be as efficient, uh, comprehensive enough, but but yet simple for the sake of our time. Um, Right now, there exists heaven and earth. Uh, so, when we die on this earth, for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, your your body remains here on earth, but your soul will go into heaven, uh, and you will be with with Jesus uh, for eternity. you will be in the presence of Jesus physically, you will be uh, in heaven where there is no no pain, no sorrow, uh, where your your favorite football team never loses. come on that last part 's not true, but i'm just i 'm taking some liberty. Uh, <laughs> But but that that's sort of what exists right now. In fact, some call that the intermediate state, because of what John uh, Revelation twenty one speaks to. Where we'll actually spend most of eternity um, is in Revelation twenty one. And here's what John says: I, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and was no longer and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, uh, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The bride, referring to the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God. He says, a new heavens and a new earth. Here's what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. And a lot's going to happen between, uh, you know, now and then. But when the second coming of Christ happens and he, for once and for all, which we know what will happen, he will defeat the Antichrist and his forces uh, that when that happens, that there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. That literally heaven will come to earth, earth will be reformed. Uh, it says here there'll be no sea, uh, so where we now have sea, there'll be land. Uh, symbolically, sea then was referring to sea was symbolic for chaos, and there's no chaos in the new heaven and new earth. Uh, and we're going to get to there's no pain, there's no violence, there's no sorrow, there's no grief. And there'll be this new earth. It means, and here's what's going to happen God's going to restore earth back to his original intention, back to what was in the Garden of Eden. That it'll be a perfect earth. Uh, So heaven will come to earth, and that is where the people of God, we will spend with him for eternity in the presence of Jesus physically, the new heavens and new earth. It goes on to say this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. The demarcation, the the key characteristic of heaven is that we will be in the presence of Jesus physically forever. Do you know right now in heaven, angels right now are in the presence of Jesus, and they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, that heaven is perfect, that heaven, listen, Heaven is, is where there is perfect pleasure. It's pleasure your mind cannot comprehend. You will experience joy in heaven that your finite mind cannot even grasp. It's incredible. Heaven is wonderful. Heaven, the new heavens and new earth will be incredible. It says this, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There will be no pain, no violence. No hatred, no injustice, no sin. It's going to be a perfect place. Again, we can't even fathom it on this fallen and broken world. There's a new heavens and new earth where we will spend eternity with Jesus. And that is great news. That is good news. And here Jesus speaks in Matthew. And again, there's a lot more. There's a lot we don't know about heaven. There is a lot that the Bible speaks to regarding heaven. I won't go into all the details again, but... Um, there are some three characteristics that are clear in the scripture. Number one is the presence of Jesus. Uh, number two is perfection. It's, it's perfect. And then lastly, it's for the people of God, for those who profess their faith in Jesus Christ. That is who will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, again, there will be no more pain or, or death Oswald Chambers, a theologian, said this eternal life is not a gift from God. Eternal life is the gift of God. Because, again, the key characteristic is the presence of Jesus Christ. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says this: Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, "Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons? In your name before. miracles?" I will tell them plainly: I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In this moment, he, Jesus, is. people are coming to him, and they're, they're saying, you know, we, we, we prophesied in your name. We went to church in your name. We read the Bible in your name. We, we cared for, for those who were experiencing poverty in your name. We, we did all of these good things. And he says, I never knew you. That word knew is the word gnosko. It's not a book knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. The word gonosco was most often used to refer to a relationship between a husband and wife. The utmost relational intimacy. Because what he's saying here in this moment is he's saying, listen, that your entrance, your access to eternal life, the new heavens and new earth, is not contingent upon your religious activity. It's contingent upon your relationship with me. And that's good news. And listen, when, 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 when he's saying in this moment, this is important to grasp. Because if we're not careful, we can begin to think that because, uh, that because we, we come to church, that makes us a Christian. Jesus says no. Because we read a Bible, it makes us a Christian. No. Because I, I say I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. No. It's do you know God? Do you have a relationship with God? And how do you do that? You put your faith and your trust in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life for all people. And he, he's saying here in this moment that I, that I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. But listen, those who know Christ, those who have a relationship with Christ, do things like read their Bible, do things like share their resources, do things like come to church, do things like forgive people. But those things do not make us a Christian. I was reminded recently of my, uh, my daughter, Abigail. She's three years old. We were watching a movie. We have a, we have a family movie night, uh, we do every Friday night. In one movie we watched, there was a scene in the movie where two people kissed, like a peck on the cheek. Well, Abigail, in her three-year-old mind, because she sees mom and dad kiss, she assumed people who kiss, when you kiss, once you kiss, you're married. (laughs) I said, you keep thinking that, girl, and you only kiss your husband when you're married, in Jesus' name. So they kiss, and she's like, oh, they're married. (laughs) And she thinks that because she sees mom and dad kiss. So she assumes it's, that's what makes you married, you kiss. Uh, how many of you know, kissing doesn't make you married? Some of you are like, thank you, Jesus, because I kissed some fools back in the day. Come on, somebody. <laughs> it's under the blood of Jesus. He has forgiven you for those poor decisions. But married people kiss. Coming to church does not make you a Christian, but Christians come to church. Reading your Bible doesn't make you a Christian, but Christians read their Bible. Why? Because we're being transformed by the Spirit of God. Therefore, we desire to be in the presence of God. We desire to read the Word of God. So so what I'm going to do at the end of service, and we already had folks this morning make this decision. You'll have an opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus, and that's how you'll experience eternal life, new heavens, new earth. When you pass from this earth, you will spend eternity in the presence of Jesus and in perfection. But we can also experience eternal life now. And and what's intriguing was in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus how to pray. What I find intriguing is his disciples saw Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, care for the outcast. Uh, They saw him preach the gospel. They, They saw him do all of these things. And they didn't ask him, hey, Jesus, how do we heal the sick? Jesus, how do we care for the outcast? They said, Jesus, how do we pray? Because I think what they watched, they watched when Jesus went alone to be with the Father. They saw him come back walking in power, walking and then healing the blind eyes after he spent time with the Father. Can I tell you, our power as believers comes from our prayer. I, I believe this. The enemy, if he cannot destroy you, he will get you to be so busy you do not have time to pray. Because when you don't have time to pray, you don't walk in his power. And if you're not walking in his power, you don't have authority over the devil. So he knows if I can do whatever I can, when you get up in the morning, if I can get them distracted by the news, by email, by Instagram, and they don't talk to him because he defeated me, he destroyed me, if if I can get them to not talk to him... Oh, I can wreak havoc in their marriage. Oh, I can sell them lies. But he knows, can I tell you when you pray, he knows you begin to walk in the power the authority of Jesus Christ. And demons tremble at the sound of his name of Jesus. Prayer is important. Let me say this as well. I think culturally right now, we are living in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture, we even see it on the broader culture, there's a, I think there's a devaluation on prayer. And let me just speak to this contextually and pastorally to you for a moment. Even some recent tragedies that happened. And I understand the motivation of this statement, but I want to say it is very incorrect. And people will say, well, I'm praying for this. And people will say, oh, I don't want to hear your prayers. Now what they're saying is I want action. But can I caution us as the people of God that we never devalue prayer for action? Because here's why. You need to do do works of justice and mercy. But can I tell you when we pray to the God of justice, he can bring justice you can never do on your best day because he changes the heart. Yes, we we do the right things. We, 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 We wanna do the things of God, but listen, more important than any of that is we need the power of God. Yes, we do seek medical attention when we're sick, but we also pray to the great physician. Yes, we do seek therapy when we're anxious, but I also pray to God for a peace beyond all comprehension. Listen, there are many of you in the room. You are doctors. I'm a former psychologist, many therapists in the room. I honor you, I bless you, but can I tell you there was no one in this room on heaven, in heaven or on earth, who is greater than Jesus. So yes, do all of those things. Do all of them. Do works of justice, but not at the expense of prayer. Because when he asked what to pray, he said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can I just say this? What we need more than new legislation, what we need more than any social changes, is we need heaven to come to earth. Because heaven's perfect. There's no sin, no pain, no violence, no racism, no hatred. I don't need this world to change. I need heaven to invade it. And how do we experience that? Through prayer. Do you want to know your position of power? It's on your knees. Yeah. It's on your face, saying, God, we need you in this world. God exalts the humble. You know, one of the most prideful things you can do in your life is to live a prayerless life. Where you try to do things in and of your own strength. That wasn't all in my notes. You got a little extra there. (laughs) But I mean it, church. I hope you hear my heart. Listen, prayer is our first response and our last resort. We we, we don't pray once everything else doesn't work. We don't pray when we're desperate. We pray every day, even when we don't feel desperate, because you are desperate. We are desperate for God. We need him. But, listen, God is not a God of prayer or action, he is a God of prayer and action. James one twenty seven. James says this, religion that a God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now maybe you've heard this, I know I've heard this at some point, sometimes that will be spoken of. This, this verse will be referenced as if it's a complete theology and that is an incorrect um, reading of this scripture. James is not giving a comprehensive theology of what God's all about. He is speaking into his context. Because into his context were Hebrew Christians who were professing Christ, but they were not obeying the word. And one of the basics in the Old Testament is to care for orphans and widows. So when he says religion is pure and faultless, he wasn't declaring a word. Yes, we need to care for orphans and widows, but he wasn't saying that's the entirety of theology and scripture. He's just saying "You you need to do the word of God. And then he says to be unpolluted by the world. What I I find intriguing is both of those things, to to, to care for orphans and widows, is what some would would categorize as as justice, to right where there's been societal wrong. In that culture, orphans and widows were the most vulnerable people in the culture because um, a woman's, in that culture, a woman's economic and social power came from their husband. So once you were a widow, you no longer had social or economic power. In fact, your property would be taken from you and an orphan the same way their their power came from their father, so if you lost your dad, if a woman lost her husband, they had no power. And how many know God brings pa- His power to the powerless? So He's saying, "Listen, care for the orphan and widow. do do works of justice." And that's important, church. We are called to do that. We are called to care for the vulnerable in our culture. But just be unpolluted by the world. That's righteousness. And, and culturally, sometimes righteousness and justice can seem to be on polar ends of the ideo- ideological spectrum. And can I just speak contextually and con- to our current culture? I think part of being unpolluted by the world, church, is, 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 is Jesus said this way. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, it, it, it loses its worth and value. You know what salt was, was used for then and what salt has, what, what the properties of salt, salt is actually healing. Salt can bring healing. And he's saying, don't lose your saltiness. James says, be unpolluted. Don't be polluted by the world. And can I tell you in 2022, something that I commonly see, and maybe you see it, and I'm not saying this applies to you, but what I see culturally is people allow their theology, their biblical theology to be polluted by their political ideology, and they're, vocal about, they're more vocal about things that their, their party of choice is vocal about. And they're quiet on issues their party's quiet about. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a citizen of heaven, as the author of Hebrew says, there will come times where your theology will put you at odds with your ideology. And just to inform you, neither the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Green Party or name your party has a corner on Jesus. In fact, and Jesus isn't the center. We're citizens of heaven. We're of a different world. So my question for you is, when's the last time your theology puts you at odds with your ideology? And just to be very clear, Jesus is, every person is made in the image of God. So God cares about the sanctity of life from the womb all the way to the tomb. These aren't political issues, people. These are biblical issues. So, listen, as a people of God, how do you be salty? How do you bring healing into a world where there's division? How do you bring healing into a world where there's hatred and and ideology that creates division? Is you be salt and light. It's getting quiet in this church. Okay, I'll move on. I love you. But God's called us to be salt and light, to be different. How do we bring heaven to earth? Through our prayer. And through our righteousness. Here's what that means righteousness. It means that we live morally pure. We don't take our, our, our P's and Q's on our moral standards from culture. We don't define sexuality by culture. We define it by the word of God. Can I get an amen? amen. We 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 define morality. We define our ethical standards not by culture but by the word of God because I am, and if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven more than you are a citizen of the United States of America. Three people agree with me. That's okay. We're to be righteous and do works of justice. And prayer is our first response. We are called to bring heaven to us earth here's the second point is god desires for no one to experience eternal death he, he we can experience eternal life and he wants no one to experience eternal death john three sixteen. for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus came into the world. God sent Christ into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. To condemn the world is to prove someone guilty. But he says when you do not believe in Christ, when you are not fully persuaded that Jesus Christ is Lord, you condemn yourself. You are declaring yourself guilty of the penalty. What's the penalty? Revelation 6.23. The wages of sin is death. So when you do not profess faith in Jesus, you are condemning yourself to eternal death. Is what the words of Christ says. But he says God sent him into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. Listen, God does not condemn people to hell. People condemn themselves, is what Jesus says. So he, he is a God of, and I want you to hear this. He is both a God of justice and a God of love. And sometimes people will think they're contradictions, but they're not. They're actually, he, he, is, he is both. So, so he talks about this idea of condemnation. Let me give some, some historical perspective. Matthew 25, Jesus says that hell was created, and hell is used in the Bible 167 times. In the original Greek, hell means the place of death. Uh, it was categorized in the scriptures. There's lots. We, there's a lot we do not know about hell, and like I said, we do not speculate where God's not clear. What we do know of hell, as the Bible says, it's a place of death and destruction and darkness, conscious torment, meaning you will be conscious of the of the pain, and the pain is eternal. It knows no end, and it's and it's final separation from God. You are forever separated from God in hell. And that and that we don't know where hell is, just as heaven, we don't know where heaven is. Uh, it's beyond space and time. It's, 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 it's not like we know exactly where it is physically. If anyone does say that, it's a speculation. It's not, uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says where it is. There's some, there's some presumptions people can make. But Matthew 25, though, how, how the devil ended in hell was Lucifer, the angel Lucifer, rebelled against God. He was in the presence of God, in perfection, in heaven, and he rebelled against God. So he and his angels were condemned to hell. And Jesus said hell was never intended for a human to go to. But God is a God of justice, and there's a consequence to our actions. And Adam and Eve brought sin into humanity when they sinned in the Garden of Eden. They were in perfection in Eden. And when they sinned, they invited sin into humanity. And the Bible says, listen, the God of justice, the justice of eternity, is that because of your sin, you are condemned to hell. But Jesus says, God did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. For God so loved the world. The question is this, people have asked me before, how can a God of love condemn people to hell? And I say this, the God of love does not condemn people to hell. People condemn themselves, Jesus says. The better question is is this, is why would you not accept the love of the God of love who gave his son on the cross to die for you and me? Because he he, he came, let's read Colossians. This brings more clarity. Chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. If you're grateful for that, can you say amen? Amen. All of your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Your legal indebtedness is death. Not natural death. Eternal death. Hell. He canceled the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. Again, we condemned ourselves because of our rebellion. Sin is rebellion against God. When we do something that's contrary to God's word, it's rebellion in our hearts. He says he's taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. So the God of love paid The penalty of our injustice, our sin, by nailing his son Jesus to the cross. And Jesus says, when you put your faith and trust in him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the savior of the world, your indebtedness is paid. That's good news, church. And can I tell you, he came for all people, not some people. Heed the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, 14, in the same way that your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. As a parent, let me say this. Justice is a term, is a, justice is something that, that every functional society, group, organization, family has. You have, there's a just way of doing things. So, like, for you know, if you were to speed on a back road in Montgomery County, the consequence would be Montgomery County police would send you a letter asking for a donation. Come on, somebody. With a picture of your license plate. That's not me. That's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, that's your face. Okay, that's me. Okay. If you don't show up to work tomorrow and don't show up for a week and you communicate nothing or you don't sign in at home to to work, you may show up the following week and the consequence would be what? You no longer have a job here, right? Are you following me? There's consequence. And as a parent, there's consequences as a parent. So the other night we had a a family movie night as a a family and Christina was out of town, so it was just me with the three kids and... uh, we have ice cream. It's the one night of the week we have ice cream, and they look forward to it. I'll be honest, i look forward to it. Come on, you know. So my two oldest were fighting. They were bickering back and forth. I, I know parents, none of your kids never fight, but mine do. Um, but they were, they were fighting. So I, the first time I, I warned them, I said, listen, I'm going to give you two warnings. On the third time I have to correct you, you're losing ice cream tonight. Now, deep down inside me as a parent, I was like, I do not want to take ice cream away, you know? And I, on a side note, like, and parents, and, and if you have to ever give out consequences as a parent or as a boss, like, no one enjoys giving away negative consequences. If you do, you should talk to a therapist about that. Come on. <laughs> All right? You shouldn't. I, I hate to give negative consequences. But, but for the sake of them, I do. And listen, in the same way, God does not want anyone to condemn themselves, but he's a God of justice, so people can willingly choose, just like my children willingly chose to not have ice cream that night. So we have a choice to make. Let me give you one more scripture about this whole topic, 2 Peter 3, 9. It says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Repentance. They were asking Peter then, hey, Peter, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Like, mind you, it wasn't too long before Jesus ascended. And they're like, come on. All right, Jesus. It's bad enough. Come on. Like, we're ready. You know? You ever had that thought? You're like, all right, Jesus. It's just enough. We tap out. (laughs) like, come back. And he says God's not slow. Hear this. He said God's being patient. I want you to hear this, that he's actually waiting for more of his lost children to come home. If you ever want to ask yourself, why is Jesus not come back, the second coming of Christ? The Bible clearly says he has not come back because there are lost individuals who have condemned themselves to hell because they have not put their faith in Jesus, and he is desiring them to come home. He desires no one to perish. In the original Greek, that means no one to perish. Are you following me, church? He is a God of love. He condemns no one. We just condemn ourselves. We put our faith in Jesus, and we have eternity with him forever. And he is waiting. If you ever wonder why hasn't he come back, because there are more people. He wants to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says this. So what do we do with this information? He said, if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That in the original Greek means when someone sees the hope you have and they ask you about the hope, tell them about it. In other words, people should be able to see your faith. They should see that you're different. Have you ever saw someone before that you haven't seen in like three months or six months or maybe a year? And they like maybe put on some muscle or lost some weight. And you're like, so what are you doing? Right? You know, like what are you eating? And then they're like... I'm not eating any carbohydrates. Then you're like, that's not worth it. You know. (laughs) I want to enjoy life, okay? Jesus is the bread of life. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, for all you low-carb people, he didn't say I'm the kale of life. He didn't even say he's the bread. Do God's will. Eat bread. But here's what Peter says. You should live so differently that people should see a difference in you. So, so that you're, you're, you're kind in a world that's harsh. You're living sexually pure in a culture that's immoral. That you have an ethical standard that your workplace doesn't have. That we gossip about this workplace. Why are you always quiet and you leave the room? That, that you, 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 you live with integri- integrity even if those around you do not. That you are generous and you give extravagantly in a culture that is consumed with consuming. He says, Stand out. Here's what Jesus says Be the light of the world. Like a light, he says, Be, be a, like, a, like a city on a hill. Like live differently than the culture around you. Paul said this in Romans 12 Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, To stand out. And then when they ask you, man, why are you living so differently? You tell them why. He says, share your faith boldly. Tell them the reason you have this hope. You know, one of the best things I think in in our modern culture, it might be an overstatement, but maybe because it's almost lunchtime, but I think one of the best things are Costco samples. Have you ever experienced this before? You go to Costco, And they have like the the pigs in a blanket out, come on, the like spinach and feta puff, or like the strawberry smoothie, come on, the like the basil and mozzarella and tomato flatbread, come on. You can actually get full off the samples at Costco alone. You can cheat the system, all right? But why do they have the samples out? Because they know when you have one pig in a blanket, you're going to want to eat 12 pigs in a blanket, When you have one piece of flatbread, you're going to be like, I need the whole thing. I just need the whole thing now. Can I tell you what Peter's saying? We are called to be samples of the goodness of God. That when they see your righteousness and integrity, when they see your moral purity, it stands out in a culture where there's immorality. That when they see your generosity, it stands out in a consumeristic culture. When they see your kindness, it stands out in a culture where there's harshness. When they see that you're quick to forgive in a culture that's quick to cancel, they're going to say there's something about you. And you know we were all made in the image of God, so all people are drawn to the presence of God and the spirit of God and when we exemplify the character of God, and when that happens is you share boldly. And here's what it looks like. You don't have to have a three-point sermon. You don't have to bring in your KJV study Bible to work. You simply, when they say, hey, how do you, how do you maintain your peace in this chaotic work environment? Now, can I tell you, I, I probably would be really anxious right now if I didn't have this, my relationship with Jesus. In fact, every morning before I come to work, I pray. Or they see your marriage. How do you have a healthy marriage after 17 years? Well, can I tell you, I probably wouldn't have a healthy marriage if we didn't keep God at the center of our marriage. That's what it looks like. It's not that you've got to have the Bible in hand. You just share what God's doing in your life. Here's what the Revelation says. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the word of our, for those who know it, testimony. What God's doing in your life. We share that. So Peter says you live, you live intentionally. You don't live haphazardly. When you're at work and you're living differently, that God's transforming you from the inside out, you wait for the moment someone asks you. And you share why you're living differently. Here's the last point. Is that we will be rewarded based on how we live on earth. There's two, there's two judgments at the end of life there's the great white throne judgment, which is where those who have not professed their faith in Jesus will be judged according to their works, and all of us fall short. That's back to point two, that people will condemn themselves for the lack of faith in Jesus. Then there's the judgment seat of Christ, and every follower of Jesus will will face uh, Christ for the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be judged, the Bible says this, according to our life here on earth. I'll give clarity to that. Romans 14, the Apostle Paul says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. He says in this moment, uh, he says, as it's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. What's happening in that Roman culture, they were they were judging one another. They were pointing the figure. They, they were calling out the sin of their of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever noticed it's easier to identify the sin in someone else before you do in your own life? As a parent and you raise little humans, you see it so often. I have two two quick examples that are true stories that have happened in the Burroughs household where one of my children have, have been have been telling me, hey dad. They're having a snack before dinner. And they're telling me this while they're eating a snack before dinner. (laughs) True story. I said, what is in your hand? That categorizes a snack. So are you... (laughs) Or, Dad, they're watching TV and you told them not to. Why they themselves are watching TV. But you know, it's easier to point out... The pride in a coworker than the pride in your own heart. It's, have you ever found it's easier to judge somebody else for living a lucrative lifestyle while not addressing the greed in your own heart? It's easier to, to address how somebody else is wrong and not deal with the lust that's been operating in your heart. I, mean, I I wonder what it would be like if we as followers of Jesus were more concerned with the sin in our own heart than the sin of other people. That if we had the posture of David, oh God, search me and know me and root out any wicked way in me. You know, Jesus even said that where where evil, where sin is birthed, it's in the heart. He's concerned about the heart. That we would live a life because one day we will have to give an account. We will stand before God to give an account. And can I say this? God is not going to measure your life by your resume. By the letters behind your name, due to all the degrees you've earned, by the by what school your child got into, by how successful your kid was in recreational soccer. Uh, He's not going to judge you based on who you know. He's not going to ask for letters of recommendation. He's not going to review your transcripts. Here's what God will judge you according to: is how faithful you were to what He asked you to do. That's what He's going to look at. I'm not listen. He has no problem with your success, your wealth, your education, your kids having success. But what, and that judgment is a reward-based judgment. Now, we will all enter heaven for those who have faith in Jesus. So your, your entrance into the new heavens and new earth, your eternal life access is not contingent upon your behavior. We are saved by grace through faith so no one can boast. But we will receive rewards based upon how faithful we are here on earth. If you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Faithful to what? You start with your faithfulness to God's word. How faithful are you to God's word? That you do the things he's already asked us to do. How faithful are you to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Those moments that you feel the Spirit leading you. Last week we talked all about the Spirit, how the Spirit leads and convicts and guides. How faithful you are to the word of God. That is what God is going to ask you to give an account for. Can I tell you, I believe this because this is how God rewards. So there will be people in heaven that we will see, and they will be greatly rewarded. The Bible refers to eternal crowns. They will have numerous crowns, and we will see them, and we will ask Jesus, "Who was she? Because that person may have never gotten any notoriety on this earth. They may have never been successful on this earth. But I think we'll have many people that Jesus will say, In the private moments, she interceded for her family. In the private moments when I spoke to his heart, when I convicted him of that sin, he heeded my conviction and he submitted to my spirit. Can I tell you, God will reward you as much, not just for your public obedience, but for your private obedience. For those moments he convicts you that nobody else knows about and you heed it, you submit to him, you'll be rewarded. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2, 5. He says, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. He he was very familiar with Grecian culture, so he's he's using the metaphor of an Olympic athlete. And he says, an Olympic athlete in Greece, they had a strict training regimen and they had strict rules they had to abide by in order to to win the crown. And he gives this metaphor because he's saying in the same way, We're to be disciplined as followers of Jesus. You know, I love to study and look at the life of Olympic athletes. I love to watch documentaries to see how did they get to this place of winning a gold medal. And you see, like, every moment of their life for four years, sometimes eight years, every meal is, like, scheduled out, right? You know, they don't get up on Tuesday morning. I think I'm going to have Frosted Flakes for breakfast, you know? It's already all measured out. and and they follow it. Why? And there's strict rules. And here's what Paul says. God has outlined a guidebook, a rule book for us. We will be rewarded according to how well we live according to his word. We live according to his spirit. We'll be rewarded. You know, I was thinking about how the word disciple Do you know the root word for discipline is the word disciple? You know, we are called to be led by faith and not by feeling. We have a very feeling-based culture. And feelings are a great dashboard indicator, but they are a terrible navigator in your life. And he says that we walk by faith. Here's what that means. Here's what that means, to be disciplined. It means that, listen, that I, I, I forgive people who've wronged me even when I don't want to. It means that I apologize to someone that I've hurt even if I'm having a hard time doing it. It means I live generously, sacrificially generous, even when I want to keep it for myself. It means that I, as Paul said, crucify the flesh. I submit my will to God's will, even when it's difficult. Why? Because I am called to be a disciple. If you want to know what it means to be a disciple, it means I discipline myself according to the will of God, the Word of God, and under the leadership of the Spirit of God. I am led by faith and not by feelings. You allow yourself to be led by faith and you say, feelings, you follow suit. Because I am living for eternity. Because can I tell you, church, when we stand before Jesus one day and we see the angels declaring holy, 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 I often wonder my own self. How much do I currently worry about and think about that? When I get in that moment, I will look back and say, "I wish I did not," and I wish I would have. We'll stand before him. Here's my last scripture, Second Corinthians five ten. Paul says this again. Paul, in almost all his letters to churches, he reminds them, "Hey, hey, hey! One day you'll stand before God. The gift of salvation's free." But one day you'll stand before Jesus. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is, what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We will be rewarded based upon what we do and how we live. You know, I want to illustrate this for you. My daughter Hannah played basketball this year, early this year rather. And uh, while she was playing basketball uh, this year, uh, it was her and a lot of the girls on her team like their first time ever playing basketball. And their first, one of the first games, they had this moment in the in the in the game. The other team shot the ball it hit the back of the rim, and it came off the back of the rim. So this girl and her team grabbed the ball, and when she got the ball, she was like so excited. Her team were like excited, like when they, when she got the ball, her team's like cheering her on, like yes. They were all like, I can't believe we just did this. Um, So they grabbed the ball. And instead of like turning around and passing the ball to her teammate, like instead of turning around and like dribbling, right where she rebounded the ball, she put the ball back in the basket. So she put the ball back in the basket, and all of a sudden she jumps up and down. Like all of her teammates are like, yes! We won! You know, they're all excited. So the coach comes over. He blows his whistle. He's like, he's like, no, no, no. No basket. And they're like, what? He's like, no, no, this is not your basket. So he pointed back the other direction. And I had this thought. and I want you to hear me. Listen, God has no problem with success, with degrees promotions, rewards, accolades, your kids getting into great schools, your kids being great at sports. But here's my caution to you pastorally as Paul cautioned the Corinthian church, as Paul cautioned young Timothy, is that we do not become consumed with scoring points in the wrong goal. As we do not measure our life by the length of our CV by the publications we had published in professional journals, by what school our child got into. Because when we stand before Jesus, he's going to measure our life by how faithful we were to his word. He's got no problem with those things. But church, let us not lose sight of what really matters. Let's not lose sight of not what culture measures, but what Jesus Christ himself measures.